This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. I don't know what vision the term decadence conjures up for you. Some advertising campaign years ago implanted an association for me with chocolate cake. But Ross Douthat sees a rich and powerful society no longer going anywhere in particular. We're stuck with economic stagnation, political stalemates, cultural exhaustion, and demographic decline. He writes this, For the first time since 1491, we have found the distances too vast and the technology too limited to take us to somewhere genuinely undiscovered, somewhere truly new. That line comes from his new book, The Decadent Society, How We Became Victims of Our Own Success, published by Avid Reader Press. Douthat is a columnist for the New York Times and author of the book Bad Religion, for which I previously interviewed him, and the last time we talked was in the spring of 2016. A few things have changed since then, but not Douthat's abilities as a must-read writer. I could do an entire podcast just reading my favorite lines from this book. As a former United Methodist, I especially liked how he described thin cosmopolitanism. That's really just the extremely Western ideology of liberal Protestantism plus ethnic food. Good line there. (laughs) This is a serious book, though, and it deserves serious attention. What's next when there are no more unexplored frontiers or fresh discoveries? What's the point of life if there are no more worlds to conquer? Douthat says we see a world in turmoil, but it's more like we've lulled ourselves to sleep. He writes this, if you want to feel like Western society is convulsing, there's an app for that, a convincing simulation waiting. But in the real world, it's possible that Western society is really leaning back in an easy chair, hooked up to a drip of something soothing, all riled up in its own imagination, and yet, in reality, comfortably numb. It doubt that does envision a possible renaissance for the West and escape from our cultural malaise. And that's part of what we'll discuss in this episode of Gospel Bound. Thank you for having me. When did the West grow bored with questions about the nature of the universe and destiny of man? It, it basically starts in the late 60s and early 70s. And obviously, you could tell a lot of different stories. And I'm just sort of picking that convenient point because it's the moment when We went to the moon um, when we reached a particular peak of what a scientific, technologically-based society could accomplish, and did so in a way where there was an assumption that this was just the beginning. So if you go back and look at not just science fiction TV shows like Star Trek, but even the things that were sort of confidently written about the future of space exploration in the 1960s, there was a sense that just as we had gone from the Wright brothers and Kitty Hawk to the moon in just 60 or 70 years, we would be able to go to moon bases and Mars colonies and you know glittering space stations, not the sort of rusted international space station that we have within another 50 or 100 years. And I think when that didn't happen, 
this sense of sort of implicit disappointment then converged with a lot of other trends that were starting up around then. A slowdown in economic growth, you had a slowing of technological innovation generally in just about every area outside the internet, an increasing creakiness and sclerosis in Western institutions that has led to the gridlock and stalemates that define, I think, both American and European politics right now. Um, and then you had demographic decline, right? Basically starting at almost exactly the moment when the first astronauts set foot on the moon's surface, Americans and Western people more generally, the baby boom ended and people stopped having babies and we entered into an era of below replacement fertility, which basically means that society gets older and older and growth slows even further because older societies are less amenable to entrepreneurship and change. And so you have this convergence, I think, of economic, cultural, political, technological forces that all starts somewhere around the time that Neil Armstrong announced what seemed to be the next great frontier. Mm. How much of what we seem to be experiencing, especially related to increased anxiety, can be traced back to that one great technological innovation that you've described there, the Internet, which is bringing us together right here? Uh, you observe the illusion of forward movement that's created by the Internet. You write this. The online age speeds up communication in ways that make events seem to happen faster than in the past, make social changes seem to be constantly cascading, and make the whole world seem like it exists next door to you, so that current history feels like a multi-car pileup every time you check your Facebook feed or fire up Twitter. So how much of this effect is really owing to that one innovation? Well, I think that innovation has, it's clearly changed the way people perceive the world. And that change in perception, basically, I think the way I described it is pretty accurate, that people feel that they feel the press of events in a way that they didn't before you had 24-7 news cycles and sort of constant streams of information coming through your social media accounts. Um, you know, and this is not a new thing. You go back to Henry David Thoreau and he was complaining about how the railroad was bringing people news faster than they could than they could take it in. But clearly, we've reached a point of, if not maximal acceleration, at least near maximal acceleration. And so that creates a lot of anxiety, a sort of sense that things must be speeding up because I'm getting the news faster than ever. And I'm getting more news from more places faster than ever. And so whenever things are going wrong, they seem to be going really wrong in this sort of cascading way. Um, but at the same time, I think the Internet is also a, pretty clearly a substitute for activity in the real world. And this runs the gamut. Pornography is pretty obviously a substitute for real world sex. Um, but even forms of political engagement online uh, are sort of often more sort of political hobbyism and this sort of this sense that you sent a tweet or you've written a Facebook post. And so you've done politics in a way that, you know, is not how people who organized or held town hall meetings or formed unions or what have you in the past would have understood doing politics. So the Internet is this curious thing, because on the one hand, it gives people the sense that the world is changing more than ever. And it seems in a way to be leading us out of decadence and stagnation into a much wilder and stranger world. But at the same time, in terms of how people actually live, staring at your smartphone all day isn't really a radical act. It's sort of an act of withdrawal into the virtual, I think.
Yeah. Yeah. Well, decadence promises us, as you observe here, the right to pleasure, the right to consumption, and the right to safety. But oddly enough, not the right to religion or to speech or to privacy. And I'm wondering, how did we decide that that trade-off was going to be worth it? Well, I don't know if we decided fully. And I want to say that that's you know, that's an extreme way of putting it for, for effect. It's more that it's not that people think there's no right to freedom of religion or no right to freedom of speech and so on. But it's it's just that in a world defined by this kind of technologies of simula- simulation and sort of pleasure seeking and consumerism, there's a sense that other that religion, free speech, these things are a little dangerous. They're a little dangerous to the social order, they're dangerous to people's feelings, they're dangerous to people's sense of their own well-being. If somebody can say whatever they want about you, then that can hurt you in some way, and you need to be protected from that. So I think there is a sort of emergent order. Of the, the politics of decadence is what um, this writer named James Poulos, who's a Californian pundit philosopher, is how, is how I describe him. He refers to it as the pink police state. Um meaning basically that it's a sort of it's a it's a society that is regulating you in order to protect your ability to pursue pleasure um so it's not a sort of fascist or communist police state that's sending you to the gulag in order to build the workers utopia or forge the master race it's basically trying to mildly chastise people who get in the way of their fellow citizens pursuit of pleasure and a sort of simulated virtual reality experience. So it's closer to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, certainly, than um, than to 1984 or other dystopias like that. I remember, uh, Ross, as we talked in, in 2016, back when we were so young in our mid-30s and, and so naive. <laughs> those, those were the days, man. Care, carefree. Um, when you you told me you weren't you didn't worry about trends in the church. This was before you wrote a book about the church. Worry about trends in politics. Uh, this was before President Trump was elected. I don't know if you disagree now with that, but here's what stood out to me, and I've repeated this so many times to people over the years. What you did said you were concerned about was your children and screen technology. Is that still the case? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that it is. I mean, my children then were probably four and two, and now they're nine, seven, and four with another one on the way. And so far, we haven't yet reached the point in their social lives when we feel an intense pressure to get them smartphones and sort of, you know, the point at which they will feel like weirdos or pariahs if they aren't on, on the internet. Um but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the internet has, it has real virtues and I'm as addicted to, as it, to it as anyone else in our society. And there are problems that it solves and things that it deals with. You get more information about the world in bad ways, but also in good ways. Um, and, but in general, I, I think that in its most intense forms, it's a substitute for human flourishing, basically. Um, and it, it sort of protects people from the dangers of reality in ways that maybe make society safer. Teenagers who are on their phones all the time are less likely to drive drunk or get pregnant and, or, you know, behave in ways that conservatives have been worried about since conservatism existed. But they're also, but they're also more 
depressed and anxious and unhappy, and I think over the long run, less likely to um, both sort of dare greatly and do great things and also do basic things like form healthy relationships and happy families. Um, so I don't have yet a sort of tech-wise solution of my own because we haven't yet encountered that fully in, in our household, but I'm but the day is well is almost upon us. One of the things I appreciate, Ross, about this book and just about your writing in general is that I, I think many times Christians focus on the smaller problems, maybe the more attainable problems or the ones that we're familiar with in our decadent cycle that we've always been debating and tend to miss the big problems. Um, and I suppose that's true in many different cultures. You always have the cliche about the generals fighting the last war. But it does seem like a couple things that are emerging in your writing, in your book, as major concerns are male unemployment or underemployment and declining birth rates. Would those be two of the things that you would recommend we do focus some of that worrying and perhaps even activity and seeking solution? Yeah, but I think especially especially the birth rate and family issue. Because male underemployment is, I mean, they're connected, right? Male underemployment is um, one reason for declining birth rates because men are less attractive as marital partners, as husbands, as providers, and so on. Um, but I do think relative to five years ago, we have a certain amount of evidence that as the economy gets stronger, you do get, you do pull at least some of those men back into the workforce. And so the picture of male unemployment or male sort of disemployment from 2012 or 2015 looks a lot bleaker than the picture today. So that's, that's the good news. I'm trying to offer some good news. The bad news is that people expected an improving economy to bring the birth rate back around. And that has not happened. And instead, the American birth rate, it didn't just fall with the Great Recession. It's kept falling through the economic recovery to the point where we're now in basically the same position as a lot of Western European and East Asian countries, though not as bad a position as South Korea, which has a birth rate of half replacement level right now. Um, and, you know, there might be a link there where maybe the slow return of men to the workforce will eventually have some positive effects on the birth rate. And we just need to hope the recovery continues for a few more years to get to that point. But I think I think the fact that the birth rate has kept falling, even as the economy has improved, tells you that something in culture, technology, the way men and women relate to one another is fundamentally amiss um, in ways that are, I think, more dangerous maybe than issues like teen birth rates and out-of-wedlock birth rates that social conservatives like myself have been concerned about for a long time. If you, if you had, had asked me to choose right now, would I rather have a society with more babies born out of wedlock or no babies born at all, I'd probably choose the society with more babies born out of wedlock. And that I, I'm hopeful that that's not actually the choice we face, but it's worth, I think it's worth social conservatives recognizing that America is no longer an outlier with a higher birth rate than the Western norm. We're right where Finland and France and these Germany have been for a long time. Now, declining birth rates are one of those issues that gets locked into that decadent cycle that we can't seem to break. Is it about the economy? Is it about economic policy or public policy? Or is it about religion? And I would think the answer is both. Yep. Um, 
the challenge is it's just we keeps being bandied back right, left, right, left along those two lines when you just want to say there is more than I mean it can be both. But how do you begin to untangle that? I mean, I've read a lot of your writing and it's a little bit pessimistic about the ability of public policy to be able to affect this change. It doesn't seem to be entirely clear that there is some sort of law that we could pass that would change this. We already seen the economy improving has not seemed to change it. Maybe that inclines toward the religion answer there. I'm not sure. How do you, how do you, well, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I think the, the reality is that you can't disentangle it. Right. I mean, one, one reason um, that birth rates have been falling is that uh, institutional religion is in decline. And there's a pretty clear correlation between um, some forms of religious practice, at least in having larger families for, I think, reasons that will be obvious to most of your listeners. Um, and in that sense, yeah, there's, there is no magic policy that the government can, can announce tomorrow that will arrest the decline of Christian affiliation in the U.S., or at least I don't think there is. Um, and by the same token, there are lots of policies that I support, sort of pro-family economic policies, supports for families with kids, child tax credits, um, you know, family attempts to sort of restore a family wage that exist in European countries to some extent and don't, you know, have not prevented European birth rates from falling. So there isn't a simple economic solution. That said, I think there are two, two places that I look at. First, I think you can see the economic policy, the pro-family policy idea as worth pursuing, not on the assumption that it's going to magically create a baby boom, but on the assumption that, you know, there are real economic costs to having kids that are sort of novel in our society. We don't have an agrarian society anymore where kids were useful around the, around the farm. We have a society where kids are expected to get many, many years of schooling that costs lots of money. And meanwhile, the cost of caring for kids has not been reduced, as, as you well know, by any magical technology, right? There aren't robot nannies yet. So all of that is a case for doing more to help parents raise their kids than we would have done 40 or 50 years ago. And even again, even if it doesn't start a baby boom, it at least builds a foundation for cultural or religious change to work on. So that if you do get that religious revival, there's a good policy structure there to make it easier for families. And then the second thing is, I think there are way places where social conservatives have sort of given up on battles that they shouldn't have given up on. I think there's a lot of evidence that online pornography has some kind of numbing effect on men, especially, and their capacity to form healthy relationships with women. And that isn't something you can solve tomorrow with censorship, but a little more censorship wouldn't hurt. And a little more censorship is possible and a little more stigma is possible. So that, again, is that going to lead to a religious revival tomorrow? No. But putting those kind of issues on the table, I think, is a reasonable response. Let's turn explicitly to theology here. And you notice a pattern of recurrence that you associate with boredom. What appears to be new is actually just from 1972. <laughs> uh, obvious in movies, uh, we've written at the Gospel Coalition a number of different reflections on that um, streak that you've also written about. But you also see this boredom in Christian theology. Where do you see that? We probably already covered some of that, at least. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you see 
there, just as there was this sort of last leap towards the stars in the 1960s, there was this really big debate that broke out in just about every Christian church and denomination in the 60s over how far the church could go to adapt and respond to the sexual revolution, um, what teachings could be reformed, what teachings couldn't, how the church should be a church in a modern secularized age. And those were really interesting and important and dramatic debates. They created, you know, the Second Vatican Council and its aftermath in my own Catholic church. You know, they gave us endless internal conflicts within Protestantism and evangelicalism, ultimately gave us the decline of the mainline, the rise of what we now think of as the religious right. And then we sort of got stuck. And I think we're, you know, we're sort of no one no one has quite figured out a way to transcend those debates. And so we're still having them. We still have sort of progressive evangelicalism that first says, you know, we need to change our teaching on same-sex marriage. And by the end is following Rob Bell out the door of historic Christianity itself, right? That's something that could have happened in the 70s. And it happens again today. And in Catholicism, you know, my last book was a book about how Pope Francis was basically reviving a sort of more liberal form of Catholicism and trying to see how much the church could change. And I think one of the striking things since that book came out and is that he sort of run into the limits of what the liberal program can accomplish or what sort of, you know, how far he can push. And so Catholic debates have shifted under Francis, but they've hardly been transformed. Instead, we have sort of returned again to 1975. And this is, you know, where he's sort of a Paul VI figure, a pope who is seen as a liberal, but then lets the liberals down. And then you have this, this sort of stalemate. And even outside Christianity, you know, the sort of return of astrology, right? Like when I was a kid, astrology was this thing from the 70s that everyone had been into when my parents were in their 20s. And, you know, by the time I got to college, nobody would have been into astrology. And yet, here we are back again in 2020. And astrology is the hip new thing, except it's just, again, 1975 come anew. So that's, I think, what stalemate and repetition looks like across the religious landscape and not only for Christian churches. It seems that in some ways we continue to try to break out of decadence by perhaps escalating our rhetoric. And you hear some talk occasionally about, oh, another civil war that's on this way. We, you know, the, this, this heightened, unprecedented polarization. But I thought it was really interesting what you wrote. You just don't see us motivated enough to take up arms against each other. Well, well, right. I mean, and, and look, this is, you know, all predictions are dangerous. And it's entirely possible that we are due for a spasm of 1960s style domestic terrorism or violence. And there obviously is some stuff around the edges that resembles that. You have had a surge of white nationalist terror attacks. And you obviously have sort of the plague of school shootings and things like that. But overall, when I look at our politics, I see, yeah, on the one hand, there's a desire not to be decadent. I think both support for Donald Trump and support for Bernie Sanders reflects a desire on the right and the left to sort of get back to the future that was promised, right? Make America great again is basically a, a, a kind of sort of conservative futurism. It says, you know, we were on our way to something great. We got derailed. Let's get back to it. And Sanders, in the same way, is saying to the left, why shouldn't we become Scandinavia? Why did we have to go, you know, why did we have to lose that glorious dream? So that's real. But in terms of it leading to civil war, I mean, you know, I mean, people are on their phones. They're really angry on Twitter. But 
crime rates are low, you know, cities are safer, they, they age, there isn't some huge age of campus protest and urban riots. And I think I said this in the book, but like the most fervent supporter, the most fervent members of the resistance are, you know, college educated suburban white women. And the most fervent Trumpists are, you know, retirees in the villages in Florida. And these are not groups that I see like taking to the streets to, to, to fight each other. And this too is part of what happens with aging, right? We are an older society and older societies, and this is, you know, this is not a bad thing, are less likely to convulse and engage in sort of eruptions of violence over political disagreements. And they're much more likely to get really mad at each other on the internet. I would need to check my historical notes here, but wouldn't I assume that most revolutions and civil wars have been provoked by young people, or at least that, they're fought by that, young people? But the two groups you just identified there are both old people. Right, or middle-aged. But yeah, yeah, you, you need, I mean, a big part of the convulsions of the 60s were just the reality that you had this huge young generation who were, you know, dynamic and creative and also reckless and dangerous as young people tend to be. And, you know, the millennials are a big generation numerically, but they aren't as big as the baby boomers in the context of the overall population. And the next generation after them is going to be much smaller. Um, and, you know, this this is, I mean, one of the points I try and make in the book is that decadence, there are worse things than decadence, right? And we should not sort of just romanticize a more violent and dramatic um, moment in history because the, you know it, those those periods can be pretty terrible to live through and can end up in some pretty dark places at times. Um, so decadence is preferable to some of the disasters that energy and idealism and you know revolutionary zeal can lead people into. Um, but it's not; it doesn't bring out the best. It sort of resists the absolute worst in human nature, but it doesn't bring out the best. That's how I would put it. Yeah. In decadence, Ross, it seems like uh, some of the crises that we discuss are are something of a game. It's almost like there's not a, a full realism or a confrontation with reality in it. L let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. You seem to show that the victims of decadence are those folks who aren't smart enough to realize that everything's kind of just an inside joke. They take things too literally. You talked about the school shooters in there, talked about the white nationalist terrorists in there. You write this, who needs churches and two-parent families and the old American Puritanism, in other words, when you can have a culture that preaches, if it feels good, do it, and then puts people who take that message too literally in prison. So it just seems to be some sort of a disconnect between the things that we talk about than the things that we actually practice there, especially at least among the upper middle class yeah. and the upper and, class. Well, and, and, and again, this, that's not the worst thing in the world, right? right. Like if, you look right. At, if you look at the 1970s, the 1970s were a much more you know, dramatic, dynamic, revolutionary, and in many ways, interesting period. They were also a period um, of, you know, <laughs> when terrible, terrible things happened. I mean, something like just the, the abortion rate after Roe versus Wade went up much, much higher than it's been in the last 15 or 20 years. The crime, crime waves soared and things like, you know, the, 
Roman Polanski raping a 13-year-old girl, like the culture of sort of what was deemed sexual adventurism in the 70s often led to truly horrible places. So it's better in a way to have this world that's sort of officially committed to a sort of safe pleasure-seeking um, where people play act online but don't, you know, actually set off 25,000 bombs around the country the way um, extremist terrorists did in 1971 and 72. Um, and, you know, similarly, right, like the way we fight wars now. The U.S. is at war in like 172 countries at the moment. I'm exaggerating for effect, but we're, we're in war in countries we, we have, you know, where, you know, one of our special forces will die in a country in Africa. And people will say, I didn't even know we had any soldiers there. So, but we aren't at war in the way we were in Vietnam. We're in, you know, we're in a sort of high-tech, light footprint war that tries to kill bad guys and terrorists and doesn't attempt even, you know, something as sweeping as what George W. Bush attempted in Iraq. And that's not the worst thing in the world. But it's all, but it's part of a culture that then sort of stagnates and doesn't plunge off a cliff, but can sort of slide slowly towards dystopia, right? In a different way than, than you know, a sort of revolutionary society would. Uh, I'm going to botch this because I'm making this up on the fly. But I wonder if we're transitioning in almost like an, av an avatar-like um, default, where almost we talk about real life is our tangible life, and online life is our sort of just, that's a separate thing. But it's almost like in some ways, people who are growing up, these younger millennials, people a little bit younger than us, at least, and down, it's almost like the the online life is is where they sort of live. They're sort of or they project something there, but then they don't necessarily expect a connection back to their real life in some way or back to their tangible life there. So I'm just trying to imagine how we've gotten into this situation where we we project all these ideas that we just don't really seem to practice or we toy around with ideas online that we don't seem to really take yeah. seriously at some level one of the questions you know in this book but also just in my everyday job as someone who writes about american politics i struggle with is how real is the internet right is how real is the arguments that happen on twitter the you know the political debates that go on online how much does that translate into um, real world election outcomes, real world, you know, the use of power in Washington, D.C. Uh, and similarly, you can ask this question with a lot of things. How real, you know, what are the effects of pornography? How, you know, how does that bleed back into enfleshed reality? Um, but I definitely think it's the case that in many cases, and this happens in my own life too, talking about things on the internet is a substitute for doing them, right? Yeah. That like, it's easier, you know, to put it in religious context, it's easier to talk about like, you know, a Benedict option or founding a monastic community or, you know, any, any sort of these sort of radical, radical Christian ideas. It's easy to, easier to talk about them on the internet than actually try and do them. And that's true, you know, outside. And, and that has always been true, right? It's always even easier to talk about things than, than do them. But the internet creates this sort of weird new space where, it's a little realer than just talk. It is a sort of ecosystem. It has some kind of reality, but people can then just sort of get lost in that and lose their, you know, lose their energy and ambition in online versions of reality. Yeah, I, I don't think it's just a, 
me getting older, uh, I, I talked with with an observer about this who said there does seem to be an impression among younger people that when they have said something, they have done it. And, and I mean, that, I mean, this is what this is like journalism, though, right? right. I mean, that's, that's you can't get too mad at young people when this is now, literally well, what I do for a living. Well, and, and me too. But the but let me point out something. The switch that we've seen in in our generation and younger to social media and to um, and to blogging and, and things like that, podcasting means that almost everybody's a journalist now. They're all columnists. They're all commentary. You know, they all have access to commentary. So it's almost like, oh, my gosh, this is like our worst nightmare come true. We're all journalists now. Well, and and I mean, this goes back to what I was saying before about the problem of political of politics as a of hobbyism, right? right. Of this sense that and and I'm stealing this. I'm just oh right. It's a it's a guy named Eitan Hirsch, who's a liberal writer who wrote a book recently called Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism. And his argument is basically this isn't just an issue for, you know, millennials or zoomers or sort of young people, that it's overtaken the way older Americans interact with politics. The people are like, well, you know, I'm in a resistance Facebook group, so I'm striking a blow against Donald Trump, or I've watched every debate and tweeted about it, so I'm really engaged in politics. And in truth, you know, the way you engage in politics historically is by building organizations that wield, that, that, that get out the vote and wield power, ultimately. And we don't have as many of them in this society as we used to. We have very centralized forms of power. We have sort of a breakdown in churches and unions and voluntary organizations that used to sort of, you know, bring power up from below. Um, and that interacts with the Internet, I think, in ways that it makes people approach politics as entertainment while thinking that they're approaching it as activists, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and I and I completely agree with you. I don't think that's unique to younger people. I, I see plenty of that, and perhaps especially among retirees who seem to have both the means to be able to do it, and then of course also the time to be able to practice that hobby. One last question here: I'm talking with Ross Douthit, author of *The Decadent Society: How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success*. You do posit uh, some ways of escape from decadence. And on this Gospel Bound podcast, we talk about how we're searching for firm faith in an anxious age. Uh, one of the ways of escape you posit there is that we aim for the stars, or at least Mars, literally speaking here. Um, but I want to talk about the other option that you give, the one a little bit more relevant to our audience here, the religious one. And you say this, or as an American revival's past, it could just be the influence of some particularly charismatic and determined group of religious leaders, preachers, church planters on a society that turns out to be more a more fertile mission field, more spiritually hungry and desperate for community than it seems to be right now. Now, I would agree with that. I would love to be able to to see more of that. I see some of that. Would love to imagine that there's more of it out there. Uh, but what evidence uh, do you see, Ross, of that kind of religious revival? Well, I mean, the U.S. is a country of 300 million people. So at any given moment, there is a religious revival happening somewhere, right? That's the good news. If you go around the country and, you know, I've done it promoting books and giving talks and um, I speak to a lot of religious audiences and you're always finding unexpected places 
schools and groups and churches that are growing and thriving and doing an incredible job. Um, and I was just at an event for um, in Boston for the Veritas Forum, which is a you know mostly Protestant but ecumenical group dedicated to sort of increasing Christian presence and Christian dialogue and influence in universities. And you know it was basically a meeting for all of these Christian magazines, journals that were founded on elite college campuses that were sort of under this larger umbrella called the Augustan Collective. And nothing like that existed when I went to, I went to Harvard, I went to, a, you know, the elite of the elite school. And I think the Harvard, the Harvard Christian magazine was founded a few years after I graduated, but it would have been unimaginable to me as a Christian at Harvard to have this kind of huge community building exercise for intellectually serious Christians from, you know, what are thought of as secular schools around the country. So that's just an example of how at any given moment, even amid decadence, something interesting is happening. And, you know, there's a little evidence in the last year or two that the the rise of the nuns, the decline of religious affiliation has finally slowed or and that there is a sort of resilient core of Christian institutions that still exists and can be built off of. So those would be sort of points of optimism. But generally, you may just also have to reach a point in the culture where people get tired enough of the virtual that they hunger for the real. Um, but then the last point I'll make, and I'll leave you with this, is that you know you mentioned that I talked about space, which is sort of the you know the quirky, weird sci-fi part of the end of my book. But I actually think the religious and the sort of space sci-fi dimensions are linked in the sense that you know part of what's striking about our moment is that we have we have fulfilled the biblical admonition, right? We have filled the earth and subdued it, for better or worse, right? We'll find out with climate change how the earth reacts, but. We have we have done that. We've created a world empire that is kind of like the Roman Empire, except bigger and genuinely global. And I think it really is the case that you should expect at that moment, you know, that either there has to be a way for us to go beyond what th this earth and expand into the stars, or there has to be some sort of, you know, maybe dramatic moment of divine intervention now that we've fulfilled that admonition and we don't really know where else to go. So I don't think the the idea of exploration and the idea of religious revival or something even more dramatic than that are incompatible. I think they're both responses to this striking situation we find ourselves in where we've sort of gone as far as we can go and aren't sure what comes next. As you said a number of times in this interview, decadence is not the worst thing. It could get better. It could get worse, um, but it uh, won't be cycling repetitively forever, most likely. Uh, my guest on Gospel Bound has been Ross Douthit, author of The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Ross, thank you again. Thank you so much, Colin, for having me. It was a pleasure as always. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes, subscribe to my newsletter, and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.